Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 166 is Lakshminarayana Shankar, who goes by El Shankar, or Shankar, or Shankar. He was born in India, raised in Sri Lanka, moved back to India. He's been playing violin since he was seven. Started professionally in a trio with his brothers. He broke onto the world stage with John McLaughlin in the group Shakti, releasing three albums with them from 75 to 77. He then played with Frank Zappa and released his first solo album with Zappa Producing in 1979. He's since then had about 26 releases. You're right now listening to a track called Psychic Elephant from Vision, a jazz album he did in 1983. He played, sang, and got some co-writing credit on Peter Gabriel's Last Temptation of Christ soundtrack in 1989. Has backed Elton John, Eric Clapton, Phil Collins, Bruce Springsteen, Van Morrison, Steve Vai, Sting, and many others. You've also probably heard his voice used in the theme song and throughout the show Heroes. He's also done a lot of work with Korn. And we'll be discussing a duet that he sang with Korn singer Jonathan Davis, Can't Wait, from El Shankar's 2020 album, Chepliri Dream. Then we'll look to Back Again, from an album called MRCS from 1991, and all the way back to a song called Darlene from that first solo album, 1979's Touch Me There, produced by Frank Zappa. And we'll conclude by listening to Savior, a track from his latest album, 2021's Christmas from India. For more information, please see lshankar.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you want to support these efforts and read my detailed song breakdowns that I create for each episode, you can sign up at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Finally, if you enjoy the show, I hope you will leave a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. There's a little widget in the upper right of nakedlyexaminedmusic.com that will direct you through that process. Here we go. So I will have played a little bit of Psychic Elephant from your 1983 album Vision. I don't know. I chose that just because that was what Spotify was labeling your most famous thing. But your most famous things are your voices on the Heroes soundtrack. You're on Peter Gabriel Passion. You're on a ridiculous amount as you know of major artists as a a session guide, you want to kind of orient us of the path of your career. We're going to pretty soon play something from your uh, Chipliri Dream album. But back here in the 80s, you were a officially a jazz guy, but I hear you're don't, not that fond of jazz. It's not that, because I never was trained as a jazz musician, but mm. I worked a lot with jazz musicians. So sometimes these albums, like Jan Garbrack, and they are very well-known jazz musicians, so it was classified like that. Mm-hmm. The same thing with John McLaughlin, too, because I had a group where I wrote most of the material this is called Shakti, you know, with John McLaughlin. And so he was a jazz guitarist now. Like, so I think it's partially at that time, whoever is on the album, they thought it was that, yeah, like in terms of genre. But I'm just more a international artist, world music, you know, I, from everything. Yeah, like I've been influenced, yeah. So it's Can't Wait was the track you had picked from 2020's Chipliri Dream album. Where were you at? With this, can we orient folks with that album and this song in particular? 
actually, I was uh, living, I've been living in Canada, in India, plus also I live in Los Angeles, California. And that song, I wrote all the material I wrote in Kerala during 2018 in the fall. And there was so much of floods everywhere, floods. But I recorded the voice. I went to Jonathan Davis' house, like in Los Angeles. I live in L.A. too, no? In fact, it's funny. It's his birthday today, 51st birthday. And Jonathan and me have collaborated a lot. I collaborated with him on Queen of the Dam, I think in the 90s. And I was also part of his true solo album. I was the opening act and was a special guest on his world tour, on a solo tour. And uh, so he sang like three songs on this album. And one of the songs is called Can't Wait. Let's make the changes to make the world better. Let's not 
So even though he's saying this, these are your lyrics, am I guessing? They sound like your lyrics. No, it's my lyrics. It's all my lyrics. It's all my songs. My music, I completely. It's my solo album, actually. Yeah. It's basically progressive rock with lots of legendary musicians on it. Yes, yeah, so a lot of progressive rock musicians on here. This song in particular, I don't know if even progressive works because you got these big, just happy power chords. It's an arena ballad or, some, or stadium rock. Arena ballad, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it has like Stephen Perkin from James Addiction on the drums, and I have, like, Norwood from uh, Fishbone. No? Is he the bass player? Yeah, bass player. Was this all layered? Did you get these guys together as a band and jam these out? Actually, what happened is I got the track together, like, in Los Angeles, and then I took my Pro Tools things and went to Jonathan Davis' house. That was the day he just finished Corn's tour the day before. It was just me and him, yeah. Okay, so you're adding all these celebrities after the fact on the rhythm tracks that you've already got it. The rhythm track was already done before I took it to Jonathan Davis. Yeah, everything was done so you can hear what's going on really. All right. So how are you working with these? You know, are you coming in with a demo of here's what the baseline is going to be? Or are you dictating it? Or is it just, you know, Norwood coming up with that? I had a clear idea of what I wanted. It's at the time in India, Chaplery Temple, that's the Shiva Temple, beautiful location with lots of peacock and all those stuff, but so much of rain and all those stuff. I was a drummer also, so I used to play the beat basically to give an idea, and I sent it to Chester Thompson, and he's an amazing, incredible drummer from Genesis and Phil Collins, and he was in Nashville, so he would come up, and just to more, because whenever I write a song, I needed some guidance, how the lyrics are working against or with the beat, so I would send that to him, and I said, feel free, then he would send me his drum tracks, then I would listen to it. And then we'll work with it. Say, can you change it here or make it a little more busier here? I need some fills over here between the verse and the chorus or things like that. But Chester was amazing, incredible. And the album, most of the tracks, like six of the tracks, the bass player was Tony Levin. And we have worked for so many years. Incredible, amazing. So I would send it to him and he would send me back, record this. He had a studio in upstate New York. 
in between his tour a few days here and there and he will come back and lay down a couple of tracks for me and send it to me and and we connect like on the phone already i have an amazing keyboard player like in india his name is dilip and he's from palakkad where i was he's also amazing engineer so he helped me get all the tracks together as per engineering like in india but i record all my voice and my violin and then i had another amazing uh, keyboard player called zack baird he was with corn for so many years and he also was a keyboard player for jonathan davis solo things and he has worked with me on my previous albums to zack baird putting musicians together and already that's all but zack would come to my house like in los angeles and lay down track because it's very complicating and very very expensive to get all the musicians in the same place and these are all like very high profile musicians so i got like so much out of them and it was very and they are all very nowadays you know because everybody has a studio you know and it is just before the covid time just before the covid time and i finished it like in its release in october like in the the following year the covid started like in february things like that heavy so at what stage are you adding the violin solos last the violin solo last yeah correct okay but i would have a, a just a rough to show what's going on so jonathan hears it not really that's all yeah but also my voice was already done to have a clear i'm also singing on it and we both share the lead vocal so i've sung on it and then also as a reference for jonathan and all the other thing was completed pretty much yeah, all the bass the drums and uh, the keyboards and was completed maybe just the violin solo i redid it again no and do they want to get jonathan's energy and maybe i might have sung Uh, also redone some parts of my vocals because first I sang it was sang it was more like a reference for Jonathan and so I think I retouched the vocals yeah it's such an interesting you know double tracking with another lead vocalist that sort of sounds sort of like the birds or something you know where they had two guys doing that at the same time but you know you and Jonathan have such I would think different voices but they blend just so well and this sounds like a thicker version of your voice like if you didn't tell me that you had this famous <laughs> rock singer as a guest i i would just think it was you with some effects on it or something exactly he's a great singer in fact i doubled all his voices on a solo tour but many times sometime i would sing in the same octave or one octave higher and uh, we have sung a lot together so it really blends really well yeah yeah okay so in the i guess the second verse when you have the parallel octave so that's you you doing the high part there correct repeating the same lyrics to the verse again and again i mean is there something to that style is that you know making it almost a mantra to by you know i'm only going to write one verse you know this was more like a very special song so it was more a message to the world and so i just found like one chorus and that's the reason uh, both the violin solos that's during the verse time otherwise normally the song i would have written the verse with the vocals so this was one special very different that song Okay, so what I'm calling the B section is actually the the verse because it starts out with the refrain, the chorus, and then we've got as it goes into these other chords and you introduce, I don't know, still a very extremely tasteful arrangement overall with all these great players that you're, you know, let's just come in with one violin note to start us off. You know, that's going to answer the and then, you know, that gives you room to really take off for the solo later. Yeah. Yeah. 
in that solo toward the end where, you know, you're trembling over one note and you're sort of, it purposefully goes a little flat. I, I know with violin, because of your vibrato style, well, of course, any violinist can use vibrato, but then this exaggerated vibrato, what is there a technical name for the sort of Indian style of vibrato that's... Glissando. Okay, so, so just a glissando. Is there a different tonality that comes from Indian music such that you're actually paying attention to, oh, these are microtones. I'm not just playing this a little flat on purpose. It's Yeah, correct. Microtones. And also, I have a, my own invention, double baron, which is like 10 straight only double baron. So it's electric baron. So it's from that. And the inflections you are hearing are some Indian inflections and already. Okay. I don't know anything about the music theory of Indian music. Is there anything, you know, focusing on this solo that you can say, you know, that you're, you're bringing to the table, like when you're teaching this, like, okay, this is how a Western solo might go. And here's what I'm adding. It's more like improvisation. When I did the solo, all those sections are purely improvisation. I remember like whenever like I was with Frank Zappa, you know, I, he produced one of my earlier records. I used to tour with him. You would invite me on stage and we would just jam for a long time. You know? And he was very aware of Indian music too. So many times these ornaments and the way of interpretation, that's all, but they are just improvisation. Okay. So yeah. And I guess in the world of improvisation, it doesn't even matter. Yeah, improvisation. Well, you tell me if, if you, if you speak the same harmonic language or, you know, you're playing with all these jazz trained musicians, but clearly it doesn't matter. You're just using your ears. Exactly. And, and when I work with like rock musicians, I play with them, whether it's like Robert Trujillo from Metallica, different things. You have to kind of blend in with what they have to do, you know, like, like if I'm working with Peter, I have to blend in with his style already. So I'm more of an artist, like I've done like lots of world music and work with lots of different artists, different genres, you know, so I can kind of adapt to it. And but lots of it has to do with like improvisation quality too, yeah, how you can adapt. It's more like an actor, you know, like more like a theater actor. That's it, yeah, really. So how many times, given that this is not a song that goes on for 20 minutes... <laughs> How many times would you do that solo typically to say, okay, I, now I've got the energy levels building the way that I want it to? I mean, is this is it always first take or is it more deliberate? Usually the first take is a great reference. Then maybe I'll do two or three maximum. That's a, it's more for the reason the second take will be more for the engineers or maybe if the second take is better than the first one. But there are complete takes, no edits and joining two or three takes. It's not like that. It's straight through. And it's more for the energy and maybe two more times because at that time you're feeling certain way and they cannot be recreated. So in case if something goes wrong, the engineer says, you know what, there's some kind of buzz over here. So technically, I mean, like sonically, this first take is better or the second take is better Then I can give a choice. Okay. And was the synth, this, this effect, was that sort of a last minute addition, you know, in production, or was that part of the song from its conception? I was thinking of like a rush keyboard part where it's just, you know, holding down one note. Yeah, he's the guitarist work, but lots of people here and uh, he's LA guitarist. So we got the guitar chord, but then we also have the swirling. You're saying that's just a guitar effect. That is this low synth. Like harmonics kind of stuff that's violin on top of it. Those are the kind of stuff I use for even Phil Collins, like in the air, all those kind of stuff. Definitely was, was reminiscent of that sound because it was you playing on that. All right. Well, let's get the second song out there so we can have another example of you doing something that is similar. I mean, I, this is one that I picked back again from 
MRCS is the name of the album, 1991. I don't know if it was the best choice as an instrumental uh, because you have so, there's so much to choose from. And this is, it was very easy for me. You made it easy for me. Yes. Yeah. This, and this is not a particularly complex one, but it, it parallels very well. Can't wait that, you know, this is your pop sensibility. But here you're in a different context, you know, even though this album itself has some of the songs, some of the most, the poppiest songs on there have full drum kit. This one has traditional Indian percussion and just a lot of layers, I guess, of your, is there also cello on this or just lots of layers of you? That's my double violin, actually, basically my double violin with all the ranges, yeah. So this is coming out of your, what I was calling your jazz phase. This is still ECM records, right? The jazz? ECM records, correct, yeah. But it's not a jazz album. It is something else. It's instrumental. You know, this song at least is pop, I guess. Where were you at at this point in 1991 coming out of that? You know, you were releasing a lot of albums in a row at this point. Yeah, I was releasing a lot of albums at the time. I was also living in England. So I was working with like uh, lots of uh, like Major and Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins. I did a lot of work with Phil Collins and my solo records. Universal released it, so they won't play the YouTube version of it. So I was trying to hear it. Because some of these albums, I don't have them with me, no, because I have so many records no, released. So it was very hard to hear them. So I haven't heard. I know the melody. like uh, I remember them really well. That's not a problem. But how they played and who was and all those kind of stuff. Well, that's funny. Just the availability. You've got such a vast catalog. And I wasn't able to hear a lot of it because... You know, I'm looking on your website. You've got albums from 2015, 2012, to like that are that I can't find anywhere that are not on YouTube on the streaming services. All this ECM stuff I was able to just hear on Spotify, which I'm I know is probably not making you any money, which is not great. What is that like at this point in terms of getting things properly distributed? And do you own all the recent stuff? I assume no matter what label it's on. The very recent stuff I own, yeah, like more like Chef Perry Dream and the new album, like the Christmas things, and the Indian records, some of them, like with the ECM records and everything, they own it. And it's very complicating before, like with the record companies, with the artists and all those kind of stuff. And so once you leave a record company, and then sometimes you cannot find your catalog and they don't distribute it. And sometimes if you're in a different countries or even they don't give permission. So they take it up YouTube. You know, I was trying to hear my own song. I can't hear them. And YouTube, it's like a, a kind of a band or whatever. And really, you cannot. And so it's hard. So whereas I realized I should really get all my things while I'm in America with the hearts, sweetie copy and put them into my computer. So I have them all available. I have such a large catalog and already. That you have all your music available at the time already. That's what I got to do at some point. But I will be returning to America like middle of March because I have a tour in April in U.S. Well, I hope that can happen without. Uh, yeah, too- I hope as long as the COVID stuff yeah, don't stop already. Yeah.
That was neat, but before we talk about that song, let's do the ad break. Chuck D., legendary lyricist and co-founder of Public Enemy, hosts the latest edition of Audible's exclusive Words Plus Music series, Songs That Shook the Planet, reintroduces listeners to the soundtrack of social change in America. You'll hear the stories behind iconic songs and the songs themselves, performed by Billie Holiday, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Too Short, and more. The experience is both powerful and haunting as Chuck D. relates the shocking price some artists paid for speaking truth to power. Adding extra resonances to the stories, Chuck D. relates his own introduction to the songs at a young age and how the music changed his life and career. Songs That Shook the Planet reminds listeners of the indelible songs from artists who literally put their life in the line for their art, creating work that is just as powerful and relevant today. Visit audible.com slash songs to start listening now. Continuing thanks to Masterclass for supporting this show. Masterclass is where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. Any creative endeavor you can think of probably has a masterclass. Not just the 21 and ever-growing list of music classes featuring greats like Itzhak Perlman, Danny Elfman, Alicia Keys, Questlove, Yo-Yo Ma, Metallica, Herbie Hancock, Hans Zimmer, Reba McIntyre, and many more. But they've got music-adjacent stuff like poetry, all sorts of writing, humor, marketing and communication. Design and style, so many food courses, as well as politics, technology, sports, wellness, and more. This week I looked at Joy Harjo's poetic thinking class. She's the 23rd U.S. Poet Laureate, the first Native American to hold the title. And she teaches not just how to write poetry, but how to listen, creating space for inspiration, getting past your blocks, going into difficult places, unlocking your creativity, revising. And there's even a bonus lesson with her musical partner, Larry Mitchell, to turn a poem into a song, so clearly relevant for all you songwriters or people interested in songwriting. This is just one of over a 100 classes that you can take in bulk or just bit by bit. They create great little playlists of themed lessons from different courses. You can do them on any of your devices. You could do them at video or just audio at fast speed or slow down and use the supplementary materials, interact with other students I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. As a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash NEM now. That's masterclass.com slash NEM for 15% off masterclass. And I think I've told you about Nebia by Moen, the transformative showering experience. But I'm going to tell you one more time here. Nebia, a cutting-edge Designer of showery things, backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers, who have a passion for saving the planet by stopping us from using so much damn water. But you don't just want a, a shower head that gives you less water. No, no, no. This is the world's best high-pressure water saver shower that gives you the feeling of just as much water pressure while using only 50% or less of water compared to additional shower. They have sent me the Quattro, which is super affordable and has four different spray modes you can switch between. So you could use the popular Nebbia Spa Spray, which is my preference, but then I like to switch to the powerful high-pressure spray modes too. The Nebbia Quattro is super, super easy to install. Literally just unscrewing the old one, screwing this in, takes about three minutes. You can get the fixed rain shower version or what I got, the hand shower version, we're made with recycled ocean plastic. It's available in five beautiful finishes to match your bathroom. They've also got sustainable bathroom accessories such as their new quick-dry earth mat, shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats, and more. So 
So get in there and upgrade your bathroom. Nebbia by Moen starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. So yeah, this has two distinct, just really catchy parts in it. You know, this da 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 and then the what's the da 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 yeah, any thoughts about, do you even remember how you're coming up with these melodies and putting these together? I really am very comfortable with songwriting, you know, so it comes very naturally to me, yeah, very, very, very natural. So I can write a song pretty fast already. And then I revisit it just to make sure, only for the arrangements, you work a little more, but they're all very, very natural to me. It has a very vocal quality that you're just so comfortable on violin that it's just as if it's... I don't know, when you actually then want to write it as a vocal line, did the lyrics usually come quickly for you? Or is that kind of a, oh, no, you think in terms of the music and then lyrics might take a lot more thought? The lyrics comes very naturally. Sometimes you write both of them together or sometimes just the lyrics first and put the melody later. Or sometimes suddenly a melody comes to you while you're just walking around. Some melody comes to your mind, then you put the lyrics to it. So at this point, I mean, this is such a singable melody is, you know, I just had you thought of or, or, you know, making vocal versions of this at this point, or that's just not where you're at. at Actually, I had lyrics for those songs. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, I had, yeah. Interesting. Was that for record company reasons? Because they were classifying you as a, as a instrumental guy or? Manfred, I sure he wanted using instrumental versions. It might be a little bit of a burden being so good at an instrument that everybody wants to hear you play that, that I've noticed in some of your more pop-oriented tunes, like the first Shankar and Ginger album, very adult contemporary pop, like hardly a violin to be seen. Was that a conscious, like, I, I don't want this to define me, I want to do other things? It's not really that, because many times uh, there's a large audience which knows me only as a singer, just like for Last Temptation, and passion and all the heroes. I did like 57 episodes, including the title and all the 57 episodes. Only my voice was used. And plus also the reborn heroes. Then they had another 13 episodes, which was a few years later. So they used only my voice. So many times when you hear some of those inflections on the voice, that's the same thing I use on the bottom. I was basically a vocalist first, then learned the bottom for that kind of singing and uh, so you hear that kind of tonality and different things, yeah. So it's not many times the record company, they have an idea. They would say, we want more a, a vocal album or sometimes just an instrumental album. Sometimes, you know, they have asked just what they are looking for, really, you know. How does the singing and the violin match in your psychology? Are they really interchangeable? Like, I don't hear you doing a lot of complicated phrasings in vocals. Maybe I just am not thinking of the right thing. It's usually at least... Like on the song that we just talked about on Can't Wait. It's a very straight ahead melody. No. That's very different. That's more of a rock song. That's more of a rock song. But whereas I have lots of stuff, even with Jonathan Davis, like during a solo tour, we would have a 10 minute section. So where we would do lots of vocal improvisation, which is a lot more meaning. So that you could be just as wild with your voice as you are on violin. I mean, I know. Yeah, then we use many of the rhythmic. All these kind of stuff too, no? which is very rhythmical. So Jonathan Davis and me, we used to do all these things together. So many times, and 
concerts, I can use different stuff in different sections, yeah. All right, so it sounds like these are more or less interchangeable, whether you're going to do it on a violin or... Yeah, very interchangeable, yeah, correct. In this song, you've got, you know, a similar kind of solo section as the previous song, but it sounds like you just recorded multiple takes and kept them all. Is that... (laughs) We get this flurry of violin. Let me actually play a little bit about 204... Is that what that is, that you just recorded, you know, three or four times and just... Actually, I had like delays and so many effects. Okay. Actually, it was all live. Man for I share, uh, there's very little bit of overdubs. Unless you are just uh, using a, a pad or you're using just another lower different harmony or something else. But basically, they're all like live one takes with everybody playing. Of course, with separation. But I used like delays and reverb and harmonizer and all those kind of stuff. So I have a, all these sounds coming along and plus loop pedals, different things. Looper pedals are pretty common now. I mean, back in the day, in 1991, that was their delay, but you'd have to sort of manually set the delay. It was not, you know, the kind of automated. Manually set the thing. Exactly. Those times, like I had, like, even like early 1980s, you know, I used to use all those stuff, like tons of pedals, like 20, 25 of them already on the floor and just create, they're going around the sound and all those stuff. Because there was a tour I used to do, uh, which they send me on tour, just me alone already on big tours with lots of people. And so I have to create, that's when I created, you know, like lots of loops and rooms so you can give space. And whereas that sound is going around more like keyboards or guitars or whatever, I don't really hear. Yeah, I feel like it's some of the more progressive experimental artists that I've talked to recently, it's become absolutely normal to, okay, I play an instrument and I have a computer in front of me. But it sounds like you were doing the equivalent of that this long ago and making that work. Speaking of the, you were, you were doing the very fast vocal rhythms. This is just reminding me of Darlene, which we should get out there. Not that it's vocally fast, but there's you and, so is it you and Phil Palmer or is it you and Frank Zappa playing together? Who's the guitar on this from Touch Me There? Phil Palmer, Frank Zappa produced it, Phil Palmer, and I think it's Simon Phillips on drums. All English musicians, the album was done there. All right, so yes, this is your your second official solo album, is that right, after the Shakti stuff? After the Shakti one. Prior to that, these are in the West when I moved there. Before that, I've done quite a few solo albums like in India which is not really distributed over like in America or like other places, maybe now, I'm not sure, yeah. This one is not readily available even now, unfortunately. I guess the state of Frank Zappa's record label, he has living children trading on his uh, reputation, so I'm not sure why this would not be available somehow. (laughs) But I'll write a letter. I'll write some, any more orienting thoughts before we play Darlene in full here. I have a very interesting, like, a true story. I was finishing an album tour in India completely on January 1st, and I had to fly back to London. Then I wrote the song right on the plane, and it's a very, very complicating song, which has every bar as different meters, you know, different time signature. Very, very complicating. But I rehearsed with an English band, all the English players over there, and I had a music director send the music so they can, he can go even before me and give them all and start rehearsing. Very first day, the first song we recorded, but I was conducting it. So we were taking the tracks first, and I overdubbed my stuff separately with Frank. So that took like 57 takes, and somebody was making mistakes, and they'll ask Frank, can I punch in? He said, no, you cannot punch in. Go from the top. (laughs) 
And first of all, they were so afraid of him on the day of the recording. So I asked Frank, I said, you are such a legend. So is it possible? Can you come and meet them and let them play at least just a couple of hours the day before in the studio so they can get over it? Otherwise, the day they come on the studio, they'll be just looking at you. Is it real? Not really. They're next to him and all those stuff. So anyway, he did come. But he's a very straight, amazing musician, incredible. So it took like 57 takes for them to get it right from the morning, 10 o'clock till evening, 7 o'clock. Yeah. Besides the lunch break. This very elaborate guitar introduction. So is that something you basically wrote on violin or how, how would you get that? All with the changes. I gave the changes and I worked with Phil Palmer. So it's some of his own vision too, kind of with the changes. When I improvise, you can hear all those kind of stuff. So he did his own version. Okay. So you just, that everybody has to work within that rhythmic structure. Right, all the changes, all the structure. And they have freedom to improvise within that. Yeah. 
man, Simon Phillips there uses a lot of kick drum in this song. Like, you know, it's just... (laughs) These fast runs, you're saying that, you know, you didn't even, you know, you were just conducting those, that you had to add yourself later. I conducted it to make sure they played it right. Uh And then I opened up myself. So there's two distinct violin sounds on here. Can you help me distinguish them? It has that more, are you pitzing and bowing at the same time? And then it goes into the more legato part. What, what is the, How do those two different sounds? That phrase of what you just played was more improvisation leading into the melody. And uh, I did overdub because sometimes I was using pizzicatos. Okay. And plus I was also using lower, like cello range and all those stuff. So I have to overdub separately to get an orchestral sound. Okay, so you can't, despite your elaborate setup, you still can't, of course, pluck and bow at the same time, which is, sounds like what you're doing there. That gives that very distinctive sound. I don't know, do you sometimes on tour, do you ever have a second violinist come with you just so you can do stuff like that? Usually nowadays, there are more pedals and different things and different ways of doing it, or you can, unless if you really need it, because they are, especially for complicating music, then I can have it already on a different track. And nowadays they have like octave pedals and all those tabs. So why do you play one octave? You could have the lower octave using the pedals. Let me play 138, this sort of flurry in the solo here. Yeah, this thing to get you into the end part, the climax of your solo. Any thoughts about how those kind of things come together? The improvisation part, I don't, I don't have to write. The, only the composition part I wrote. But then it's more like a more like a song, you know, like trying to lead into it. It's more like lead guitarist, you know, sometime before the song, in between the song, you know, like playing around, all those kind of stuff, yeah, really. Well, that's what I was wondering. You know, I, I know a lot of people who have learned to shred on guitar, and it's very, we're learning scales. We're going to learn to play the scales just faster so our hands can be faster than our minds. Was that pretty much the same kind of approach in your training or was it just more ear oriented than that in terms of playing something that fast that it would be hard for me to even like try to sing something that fast like in in other words my musical brain does not move so is it more is your hand doing something or is your mind doing it if that question makes more than my head correct all right. So, I, yeah, I guess if you're if you're thinking in terms of these... If you can do it in my mind, it'll be easier for me to reproduce it with the instrument. And I noticed around that time, a little after that, there's some Zappa-esque xylophone doubling you. Was that an overdub at least, or was that part of the, the band? That's me, my violin. Well, so you're you're playing it, but then also on top of that is ding, 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 which is a very common Zappa yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, no, that's like pizzicato, pizzicato. Oh, okay. Pizzicato. Well, in nearly everything Zappa has composed that I can, you know, there's some very fast xylophone or marimba or something playing on top of it, you know, to show that this is not just a soloist. That sort of makes it sound composed. You know, it's not just a soloist doing this fast run. We have three people are, you know, doing the thing in unison to show you that this really was planned in some way. Yeah. I had read a little bit of interview or quote from Frank Zappa predicting good things about this album in terms of its radio play. I imagine that did not happen. It's at least you didn't do more in this direction, at least immediately after this. Can you say a little about sort of what the place of this album was in your canon? Was this just a one-off thing with Frank? Actually, I was signed to a 10 album deal. But unfortunately, they went up, the record company and Hayes. So they kind of broke up, you know, really. So that 
Unfortunately, and that's what happened. So in fact, then Zappa label, I don't know who was distributing it, maybe it was Phonogram or Warner Brothers. They had a huge problem. They cut the deal. Uh, they wouldn't support it afterwards. So I think it had lots of possibilities, but still to this day, lots of musicians, everybody loves that album very much. Even if it wasn't really pushed on the radio side, they never did any stuff for that. The guys who were distributing him no radio. Okay, so just the fact that you were only you know four years later doing the Vision album, doing that more traditional jazz sounding, or at least at least the album cover looks like a jazz <laughs> album. You know that that's how it's being marketed. Yeah, ECM record owners Manfred Eicher, he has like Keith Jarrett and Jan Barbrack, and so even classical music, different kind of stuff. And so he basically is a jazz producer. Of course, he loves Western classical music too. So that's his label. So when he approached me and he said, can you make some records for me? He had a vision of, he loved my writing music, like songs and everything. He said, you should use like Jan Barbrack, which was amazing, you know, like great saxophonist. So he has provided me with musicians sometimes. So he was kind of responsible many times saying that use the paleomical roar, which probably you'll hear it on Psychic Elephant. And uh, he was from Scandinavia, I think either Denmark or one of those countries. So I didn't even know them before. So I met them only at the studio and, or, or just prior to that on the rehearsal studios, rehearsing and going through the music. They're wonderful musicians, jazz musicians. He has worked with like Miles Davis and all those kind of stuff, yeah. And so the records, uh, I did some of them with Manfred Eicher, was more, except one record was like rock and other things was all jazz oriented or maybe Indian classical music, more like in the Shakti direction, like world music, no and when did that run out, that faucet of money toward projects? Was that the, the end of the 90s? I did like eight albums. But usually what happens is like I, I do a lot of different stuff. So I need an independent. So I can stay with any record company. Because if you're doing one thing, they say you can't do the other thing. Mm-hmm. And that's why I also was approached to do like all the soundtrack stuff and everything else. I worked on a few films, and especially with Heroes and everything else. There's so much work doing when you're doing the 57 episodes. And uh, during that period, that's the time I was also touring with Jonathan Davis and opening for him and doing his solo stuff. And so sometimes it has to, uh, with Cleopatra Records now, I think I have complete freedom in doing. I have a great manager, actually, like Robert Duffy. He was a manager for Frank Zappa, really, at the time, and Alice Cooper and other people. And he's a very open-minded person, the best manager I've had. He said, you can do whatever you want. I'll give you freedom. And he said, but don't interfere with my work. I'll deal with the management, which is perfect for me. I'm not really into any business very much, and I don't understand it. So it's a great thing for me. So I can do all kind of record, really, any kind of record. And Cleopatra Records, I've done like last two albums for them, uh, which is the Prairie Dream was a progressive rock. The next one is more popish, but it's all. Uh, it was suggested by them. The owner, Brian, he said, hey, Shankar, uh, when we had a lunch, like last year, March, yeah, suddenly he said, you know what, could you give us a Christmas album with a different uh, twist to it, you know, from the world music, from Indian sitar, all those kind of stuff. No? That's how that came, which was really nice. And then I have finished another record with Bhikkhu uh, Vinay Pram from Shakti, you know, really, which is very virtuoso kind of like world music, like more kind of stuff. And then I've been working on another progressive rock album. So I have freedoms, which I can use, uh, like even in Chaprairi Dream, if you have heard like soundtracky stuff and all those kind of stuff, like what I did for Passion of the Pride. So I have a, a various styles. So I need to, I do all of them. 
So uh, before that, with certain record companies, they say that if you do this, you can't do that. So it didn't suit me, so I just leave them, etc. Wait, did you just drop in there that there's going to be a Shakti, you know, John McLaughlin reunion? Is that, did I understand that correctly? Not Shakti reunion, it's half of us, like me and Vikub and I from the clay pot player, you know, who I got, yeah. He's amazing, incredible already. And because John kind of retired already. Yeah, that's what I thought. So I was pretty surprised. I've done lots of playing with Bhikkhu in the last three years, like in India and other places. And so we made a recording here too. You know, there are more musicians than, other than Bhikkhu, but it's great, which is completed completely, which will come out sometime this year, later. Yeah. So you're able to work effectively with a single manager to yet still serve audiences in India? as well as here? Yeah, everything else. And I also have different help sometime. And uh, I'm going to be reuniting with like uh, Thrilla Gurtu, who did some of my albums and tour like in the 80s. In fact, I was talking to him like, even yesterday. There's a super gig, a super dome like in Los Angeles. We are doing a big show, which is like 365, uh, 360 uh, video project- projection. Or they have all kind of incredible footage and all those kind of stuff. We might do some shows like in Europe and America and everything else. And that will be probably when things clear as far as the COVID and everything else situation. Yeah, really. Has it changed in terms of, I know in the, in the olden days, you had to have a completely different team, you know, a different record label, different for different countries that if, you know, this is our U.S. label and this is our British label and they might not have the same tracks on them and, you know, it's just different politics to get around. So is that persist at all? Nowadays, because I think when I was signed with Frank Zappa, it was easier because he made sure everything was right, even if they gave it to different people. But you are totally correct. Sometimes they say, we don't want this track, or different thing, they want a different cover. But I think when I work with Cleopatra Records, it's the same. It's a Hollywood record. They are based on Hollywood. And so it's the same all over the world, kind of, which is nice. Well, and I think I just noticed this morning that, so the face-to-face album that was uh, prior to Shipley Your Dream, that were there two versions of that? That there's one under, at least in Spotify, there's one under Shankar and there's one under Shankar that I didn't check if they had exactly the same track, but there was a different date on it. Some other things that Spotify have really messed it up. Okay. Sometimes I've seen my name when you, and there's somebody else and already they have used my name. And so all these kind of stuff, I've complained to my record company. The same thing with Wikipedia too, no? I don't like them really because they don't give many correct information. No, it's always changed. And they don't give all the information, very old information. Sometimes they are not correct. And uh, this possibly also whoever is kind of updating it, sometimes they only uh-huh. like certain kind of music. They like only certain kind of music. So they don't like certain kind of genres of music, not really. So, but I really consider all music kind of similar. It's only great musician, good musician, or bad musician. That's it. Well, that seems a good sentiment to uh, send us off. Just uh, introducing, we were going to leave folks with one of the Christmas songs. Savior, is that the name of the closing one? Yeah, so that's one of your, that you wrote. They asked for a album of Christmas standards. And I, you know, if we were releasing this before Christmas, and I'll, I'll tell you, actually, because I was prepping for this, as Christmas was coming, I ordered the album for my father, my 90-year-old father, who is enjoy- oh, wow. <laughs> enjoy- enjoyed it for his Christmas time. So I put money into your career. But Christmas is now gone. <laughs> this is not going to come out for another month. So just focusing on the songwriting aspect, in addition to creatively arranged, uh, you know, with Indian sounds, standard Christmas songs, Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, Joy to the World, etc. 
you wrote a couple fresh Christmas songs, which seems yeah, kind of bold, especially when they don't, neither of them has lyrics, right? They had lyrics, but I made them instrumental alone or like the major part of it, even though there's lots of places have sung like chorus, not just, so just more mainly instrumental plus some uh, lyrics. And also for this particular one, I just left them as instrumental, even though I have lyrics for them. Okay, well, we'll see then with Oh Savior whether people even can detect that it's a Christmas song. Clearly, in that context, with a bunch of other Christmas songs, these are Christmas songs. But if I don't know that I necessarily, I just thought this was a good, you know, a great recent composition of yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting today. It's just really been fascinating to get, you know, hard to keep track of all the various things you've done. And there are, again, probably at least five or six of your albums I saw on your discography that I just could not even get a glimpse of. So I hope to, to track those down and uh, experience a little, little more of this. This is, a, this is a fun well to dip in. And thank you so much for having me. I think this interview is really nice. You have really done great like, research. You, know, you asked me lots of very interesting questions here. And thank you for having me. And like, hopefully we'll connect somewhere. All right. Well, have a, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much, Mark.
And thanks so much to Shankar. What an interesting, very varied career. You can learn more about him at lshankar.com, and I will put some links to other things he's worked on so you can hear him at the blog post that accompanies this at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I hope that you are subscribed to the Nakedly Examined Music feed, even if you are hearing this on the Partially Examined Life feed or perhaps through Open Culture. And remember, if you don't want to hear me read ads anymore, you can just go with a very, very small per episode donation. Support me at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. My next interview is with David Christian, long of the British band Comet Gain. Another very interesting, smart fellow. Hope you come back for that. And I hope everything's going well for you. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.